Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for uh, guiding us to this place today. Thank you for drawing us to this refuge, Lord. Uh, We seek your shelter, and we pray that you would speak to us, that you would reveal to us your grace, your mercy, your love, and the hope that is found in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord God, we pray also that you would free us from bondage to sin and death, Lord, that you would reveal to us areas of uh, brokenness and areas that we are holding back from you, Lord, so that we can love you more and know you better, serve you more faithfully. Lord God, and we pray that you would preach to us today, that you would speak to us your words of hope and love and life, and we pray that your spirit would fall afresh on us this day. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Morning. Morning. It is spectacular to see you all today. Uh, Well, thank you, Ray. Uh, I'll let you in on a little secret about myself. I am moderately afraid of heights. Right? I don't know if anyone else is afraid of heights. Um, I'm getting a little queasy standing up here. No, I'm not that that afraid of heights. But uh, growing up in my home, that was not an easy fear to have. Dad, thank you. Um, We were always getting dragged up on some cliff or overlooking something or whatever it happened to be. Um, but in fifth grade, it kind of hit its apogee, this fear of, of um, heights, because that was when you did the ropes course for school, right? And the ropes course used to be at Lyman Gilmore. Uh, they had this really high ropes course, and which is really kind of a combination of two of my worst fears, one being in middle school, and the other, <laughs> right? Seriously, I do not ever want to do that again. <laughs> And the other heights, right? Bringing those two together so that you're exposed in your fear in front of all your peers. There's nothing like that to really cheer one up. So this one uh, obstacle in this ropes course, uh, I can't remember what it was called, the leap of death maybe, or it's probably that, or I don't know. Maybe they tried to sell it as something a little less terrifying, but that's really what it felt like. Because what you did is they had these rungs attached to, uh, or maybe posts or something attached to this pine tree. And you would climb up this pine tree. And I think it was maybe a million feet tall. I don't know, it looked like it, because it just disappeared into the clouds up there, right? It was just, um, and so you would climb up, the objective was to climb all the way up, I think it was probably 70 feet. Right up to this, up in this pine tree, and then uh, get onto a platform that was smaller, I think, than this pulpit. And you would stand there on that platform with no railing, no nothing around you, just the air. And then you would have to leap out and grab a trapeze that was hanging there in the in the chasm. Uh, you were roped. I will. Okay, you had a harness on, safety harness, and a rope. But when you start climbing, if you have even moderate fear of heights, you start thinking of all the ways those security systems will not be there for you. (laughs) Right? Maybe like the pulley at the top has pulled its last pull. You know, maybe the rope has caught its last load. Maybe the the carabiner is overstressed from metal fatigue and it's going to... Maybe your harness will slip off of you, like in cliffhanger or something. You know, or maybe you'll just flip upside down, like in the, and then right out of it, and you'll be hanging there like a empty pair of drawers up there in the sky, and you'll be down on the ground. You know, you just don't know, right? 
Because fear causes you to do things that are irrational. Right? Yeah. And so that fear paralyzed me about two-thirds of the way out that tree. I was just stuck. I was stuck. I could not climb any higher. And like the encouragement or jeers of my peers could not get me any further up that tree. I couldn't will myself up it, which I'm decently okay at willing myself through the fear of heights, but I just couldn't get up there. I couldn't let go of that highest rung that I'd grabbed and reach any higher or think that there was any hope of anything above it. I was stuck, totally fixed by my fear and anxiety. Now Jesus, in our gospel passage for today, is speaking to his disciples, and I think he's addressing a fear in them as well. This reading is right after, it takes place right after the parable of the prodigal son, right, a story of God's mercy and forgiveness, and immediately before the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, a story of God uh, inverting things in this world, right, and the poor being lifted up and the rich being cast down. In those surrounding lessons, Jesus is speaking to people and is addressing the Pharisees primarily. Even though he's got a crowd of sinners and tax collectors around him, it seems that he has primarily been addressing the Pharisees. But here in our passage for today, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It's this interesting interlude where Jesus speaks to this inner circle, this audience of his disciples. And this we'll be honest, is a complicated parable, right? This is a complicated parable. Uh, and what is a parable? Well, of course, a parable is, is when you have two bulls, and you can usually get a parable for much cheaper than you could get them you know, independently on the open market, right? Get them. No, what is a parable? Come on. A story, right? And what does it have? Meaning, right? It has some type of uh, truth that is trying to convey. It's a fictional story that has a truth that it is trying to express, right? In parables, you can only push them so far because eventually they break down, right? Uh, you can only take it. You don't. You don't want to take it beyond the uh, the initial truth or the main truth that is wrapped around or wrapped inside of it. Otherwise, you end up with weird things that no longer jive with the rest of Scripture. Or reality. Okay, so he tells in this parable, the parable of the dishonest manager. And it begins with the manager being caught by his boss. Somebody rats the dishonest manager out, and so the boss confronts him and tells him to turn in his keys. The dishonest manager doesn't dispute the condemnation because he knows he's been wasting his master's possessions. Before he has to clear out his desk, and I think because of this parable, probably uh, this is the reason why HR reps will often take a fired employee straight out to the parking lot instead of letting them go back to their phone, right? Because he goes back into his office, and while he still has access to the phone, and the number will be identified by caller ID as his boss's line, he calls two of his master's debtors. He calls two of these guys. And he makes these calls because he knows he's losing his job. He's already been told that. But he realizes that he's really... Uh, hey, uh, digging ditches is a lot of work. Right? And he doesn't want to dig ditches for a living. I mean, it, that's you're out in the sun, you're working. Man, he doesn't like that at all. 
and he doesn't want to beg because he's too proud for that. Which I love how he presents him, right? I'm too proud to beg. What do you mean? I'm not going to dig ditches. Too proud to beg. i got to find something else. There's got to be an option C out there. So he has an idea that if he negotiates new deals with his boss's debtors, when he's out of a job, they will take him in because he'll have done them a favor so they can do a favor for him. It sounds a little bit like Washington politics, right? I don't know. I'm just kind of going off the cuff here. You know, like you do, you finish your term and then you get that nice job with that, um, you know, company that you helped out, right? This never happens in our politics. It probably happens overseas though, right? Uh, so, so this is what he does. Uh, and the massive, and, and our passage tells us that the master commended the manager for this dealing. We don't know why. We have some guesses, uh, and some of our guesses are one that perhaps this, the dishonest manager, what he did when he negotiated these contracts with these people, or renegotiated this deal, um, that he just re- took out his own commission and gave it to them as a credit, right? So um, he would have just discounted the people the amount that he would have taken in commission. If so, he's getting a pretty fat commission, right? Because he gives the first guy a 50% discount on his debt, which is, that's pretty, that's pretty big. Um, so it might, it's probably not that. Um, the other is that maybe the master himself is a little dishonest and is a little smarmy. And so he's okay and he commends this guy for being just like his master. We don't know. The third option is that perhaps he's just glad to get anything from these debtors, right? So really, the point of the parable is not why the master commends the dishonest manager. Rather, he does commend him. And so this parable, then, is used for us as a tool of both comparison and contrast to the Christian life. All right, contrast, that's a fairly easy one. Uh, is that the contrast to this parable is that while the world might work through dishonesty, Christians must be honest, right? While some people might get ahead by cheating and lying and stealing, is that okay for us? No, is it okay for anybody? No, but sometimes it works, right? Sometimes it works, but that does not mean it's okay. And particularly not for us who are called to be Christ's own people. No brainer on that one, right? That's an easy one. The comparison piece of this parable is that what we do with our money has consequences. If we strip the dishonest piece out of it, so imagine you just redact all the dishonest line out of it and just talk about money and how money is used. Do you think how we spend our money has tremendous or any ramifications for us and for others? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And so this seems to be the piece of the parable that's speaking to us today. Because this man with his dishonest wealth, used dishonestly, was able to secure for himself favor with others in a place of peace. Likewise, honest wealth, used honestly and generously in the service of others, can lead us to a place of favor and peace. Fair enough? Okay, we don't want to take this too far, okay? 
But like on the very basic level, how we use our money has some effect both on our temporal relationships with others in this world and also eternal consequences as well. So if we give generously to the church and the service of others, if we are known as people of generosity who care for the needing, care for the needy, freely giving to others, supporting those who are hurting, we get known as people of kindness and generosity. People like to see us coming around. People receive us willingly. There is a very temporal relationship between being stingy or being generous. Think of a Christmas carol, right? Remember the main character in the Christmas carol? Um, Yeah, Donald Duck. Right? I was an English major, so this is cliff notes for me, right? I got to watch the Disney version. Right? And so, yes. Yeah, so you got Scrooge there. And no one wants Scrooge around, right? Even And there's no security in his life, even though he has all this wealth. Right? Because he's visited by what? The ghost, right? The ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Right? And there, they take away, they make him realize how little security he has in this world, even though he seems to have it all. Right? And they make him realize how little relationship, how isolated he is from other people. And he's done that because being in relationship means that sometimes people need you. Sometimes they depend on you. Sometimes they ask you for things you might not really want to offer up. Right? That's what relationship is sometimes. And for Scrooge, he has protected himself by isolating himself. And the only person who will receive him is Mickey Mouse, right? <laughs> Bob Cratchit. Right, this incredibly generous person who Scrooge has um, defrauded basically for his whole life. Right, he's the only one willing to welcome that Scrooge. Jesus then moves into a conversation that gets pretty close to the heart. Right, uh, he steps out of the parable and begins to teach us lessons. He says, "Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much." And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. Now, this is not how we often think in this world, I don't think. We're often encouraged to not sweat the little things, right? Don't sweat the details. Don't worry about it. You know, it's really only how we deal with the big things, right? It doesn't matter if we don't, you know, pay attention with this little thing or that little thing, or we have this little mess up on this little thing, but it's the big things that matter, right? Like in our world, what makes a good person or a bad person? And we often say, though, like our judge in this world often is like Adolf Hitler, good person, bad person. Bad, but you or I? Good, right? And why? Because we didn't have the Holocaust? Right? We didn't do that? Or? There you go. Thank you very much. Thank you for testifying. And the reality is, is that if we use, if we use our own standard, we end up with this world where we're just like, the little things don't matter. The little things don't matter. Oh, when I got, you know, too much change back and I just left with it. That doesn't matter. That's no big deal. Thank you very much. That's right. It does matter. The little things matter. Right? Sure, it's not the Holocaust, right? That is a very extreme example. But the little things matter, Jesus is telling us. The little things. The little details about how we live our lives. 
those little acts of cheating or lying or stealing, those things matter. Because it's the little that reveals the big. We often think it's the big that reveals the little. We often switch it around in our minds. He tells us then that if we haven't been faithful with dishonest wealth, which we'll just refer to as money, if we haven't been faithful with money, how can we be given true riches? Then he ends by telling us that no slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus is telling us this because he wants us to be faithful with this little bit so that he can give us more. Now, in saying this, please understand that I'm not saying that if you give God some money, he's going to give you more back. Right? That's not what Jesus is promising. This is not a, um, like a divine savings and loan scheme or something like that. Right? It doesn't work that way. You don't get to just cash your $10 and get back $100. Um, no. He is saying, if you give me what you have, if you entrust me with that, I will give you more. But the more is not always in kind. It's not always the same type of thing. He will give us true wealth. Or true riches. Now what are true riches? And what is this thing that Jesus wants to give us so much and yet our money is getting in the way of receiving it? What is this stuff? Well, true riches, they're the things that God gives which can't be taken from us. You could say a portion of them are the fruit of the Spirit. We've got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. You could say that's an aspect of the things that God gives us when we entrust ourselves to him and everything we have to him. Right? He pours these things on us. And remember the Beatles once saith, you can't buy, love, can't buy me love, right? You can't purchase it. It can't be bought. It's given. And God offers to give it to us. Now, these are things that are given to us through the working of the Holy Spirit, and they cannot be taken from us. Thief and moth and rust can't destroy or steal these things. Also, a portion of this true riches, I would say, is salvation. It's forgiveness of sins. The mercy of God which pours upon us like the rain from on high, washes us clean, sets us right before God. And also, the reward of eternal life. And the rewards within that eternal life that Jesus seems to be referencing, that, are, that surpass our imagining or our understanding. There are eternal rewards that we have only the smallest inkling of in the scriptures. We don't really know what they are. These things can be given by God, but seem to be blocked by the hold we have on money, or perhaps the hold it has on us. Our grasping it prevents us from holding on to what's next. And it's a lot like me on that tree, right? I couldn't let go of that rung on that tree that I was held on, that I was holding on to with like a rigor mortis grip, right? I could not let go of it. I couldn't even imagine going any further on that tree. I couldn't imagine that there was anything better up there. It was just terror that held me in that place. So I couldn't be removed from it. Fear prevented me from obtaining what could have happened, what could have taken place. 
I was too afraid if I would fall or what would happen to me. The same fears might feel us, fill us as we think about finances too, or our lives, or our abilities, or the things God has given us. And the Holy Spirit, he has a way of poking us in our fears. He has a way of putting his finger on those places in our heart, in our lives, in our minds, where we are uncertain, or where we are not sure we want to go there with God. He has a way of pointing those out and touching that spot. Today, may we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us. May we allow him to soften our hearts, our minds, our desires, and to turn them to God. This is not all about money. This is about life. Because Jesus says here, no one can serve two masters, for we'll either hate one or love the other. This is a matter of our spiritual state with God. Are we going to be a slave to the things of this world? Are we going to be a slave to uh, this yoke that the world wants to put on us to perform and to succeed and to earn and to gain and to grow? Or will we die to that and allow Jesus Christ to put his yoke upon us, which is light and his burden is easy? May we today be delivered by our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we allow him to fill us with his hope. May we commit our lives, our possessions, our abilities, our money. May we give it all to him. And may we be freed from the bondage and slavery of this world. And may God give us a hope, a hope of eternal life, which cannot be taken from us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are the God of grace and mercy, that you are the God who speaks to us in our fear, Lord, and you pour down your love and your mercy and your hope upon us. Lord, you don't leave us clinging to that tree, but you come and join us there. Lord, and you hold us, and you give us time to relax, to trust in you. Lord God, We commit ourselves to you now. We confess to you that we are people who hold on. That we are people who hold on to the certain, Lord, and are afraid of the uncertain. But in reality, what we are holding on to is uncertainty and staying away from the certainty which is found in you. Lord God, change our perspective, change our hearts and minds, and redirect them to you. We pray, Lord God, that your hope would penetrate deep into our hearts, that you would reveal to us our brokenness and give us your hope in exchange, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to live in this world generously and kindly, caring for others, blessing them, Lord, and building them up so that they might know you and love you and serve you as well. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.